the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hello and welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here today with Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he's going to be introducing today's guest. Andrew? Hi, Nate. It's great to join you again. Our guest today is Dr. Gabby Siboni. He is the Director of the Military and Strategic Affairs Program. Uh, and the Cybersecurity Program at the Institute for National Security Studies in Israel. He's also the founder and editor of the Military and Strategic Affairs Journal. And Andrew, you got to speak face-to-face with Gabby. So here I will cut now to your interview with Gabby Saboni. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So can you give our listeners a bit of background? What is the Institute for National Security Studies? What, what does it do and, and what is your role there? So the institute is a nonpartisan institute in Israel. It's a think tank that tries to um, enhance the national security of Israel. We have uh, various programs uh, within the institute. I uh, I hold three positions. I I'm the head of military strategic affairs program. I'm the head of cyber security program, and I'm the the founder and uh, editor of uh, Cyber Intelligence Security Journal. It's a peer-reviewed journal, academic peer-reviewed journal that is published both in Hebrew and English uh, three times a year and is uh, distributed free of charge for the public. Yeah, I've been on your website and uh, I've seen the journal, so it's interesting reading. So uh, a think tank focused on security, the, uh, the, the focus of the podcast here is cybersecurity, and in particular, cybersecurity for industrial operations. Um, in 2016, you you co-authored a document, uh, Guidelines for a National Cybersecurity Strategy, where you talk about the role of the state and the role of private industry. You know, in many countries, there are a lot of critical infrastructure is privately owned. Uh, in others, it's government owned. Can you talk about um, the role of government versus individual uh, facilities and businesses, what role should each play in uh, ensuring the, the, the security of, of the, you know, the population? Well, I'll, I'll discuss it. This is uh, further discussed in a book I wrote, just published uh, last week, uh, uh, Regulation in Cyberspace. And uh, we have a, a model developed to, to try to, uh, to define the relations between uh, government and, uh, let's say, the business sector. Now, uh, um, to focus on on industrial systems, okay, I think that should be the focus of our discussion. Yeah. So, to focus on industrial systems, of course, in every country, some of them are are held privately, and uh, and some are uh, are held uh, by the government or or by some let's say public entities. Um, some are critical infrastructure, and some are not. So uh, there are. I think most of the critical, sorry, most of the of the industrial systems are privately owned, and they are privately owned by companies that use industrial control systems for their own activity. So when we discuss the relation between government and the owners or the operators of industrial systems, we should divide those to what we call critical infrastructure system, which may affect 
the country's uh, continuity, uh, ability to continue with its critical service to the citizens, say power supply, water supply, transportation, train, and a variety of those things, uh, those entities, or even um, um, hospitals, and depending what you define as critical infrastructure, it's uh, differently defined, I assume, between uh, uh, various uh, countries. And on the other hand, uh, and, and in Israel, those uh, entities are guided and regulated by the government. There is a government, the, 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 our national uh, cyber bureau or cyber directorate is in charge of uh, critical infrastructure, of uh, the regulation of critical infrastructure, the cybersecurity regulation of critical infrastructure. But this is only a fraction of, uh, of the industrial control systems that are used in Israel, only a small fraction. And uh, the, in, in our proposal in uh, the book I man just mentioned, uh, we recommend that uh, even private entities should be somehow regulated by the state because some of those entities, if they are harmed in their systems, may affect national security. Only if they affect us. We don't care if the business is going down. That's the shareholder's problem. But if it affects national security, I think the government should regulate them as well in a certain model. So we propose a model how to regulate those. This is, the, in a nutshell, the, the, how I see the relations between uh, the state and uh, the operators of uh, industrial control systems. So what Gabby's talking about here is identifying critical infrastructures. And if you look online to DHS resources, you could see that the U.S. has identified 16 sectors. Canada has identified 10 different sectors which qualify. Um, what Gabby's talking about seems pretty standard, correct? It is. What, what I heard, though, you know, what I heard Gabby say, though, is that for all of these critical infrastructure sectors, Israel has put in place regulations that apply to them. And that is, uh, is unusual. If you look at the, the DHS uh, you know, advice to the sectors, they've got advice to a bunch of sectors. There's regulations in place for, I think, two of them. And nothing for everything else. And there's even fewer in Canada. So the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the breadth of regulation in Israel is unusual. Um, we will put a, a link to your book. Uh, it is now, it was published in Hebrew, and now it is uh, being translated, so it will take a little bit of... Uh, okay. When it's ready, I think you do it when it's ready. I expect it to be within a couple of okay. months. Okay, we'll, we'll certainly do it when it's ready. Um, when, we, when we come to the topic of regulation, um, it's, a, it, it's a controversial topic. Uh, a lot of businesses... Um, uh, see regulation as as unnecessary cost. Um, you know, people describe the difference between between security and regulation as security is doing whatever I think is necessary to secure myself against threats that I'm worried about, and regulation is doing what someone else has told me to, whether it's useful or not. Um, can you talk about? Um, what kind of of, uh, of regulation you think makes sense? Um, you know, how prescriptive is it? Uh, how much leeway do do individual businesses have for risk based decision making? Regulation is some sometimes being considered as a, as, as a, let's say as, a, as something that decays business. Yes, uh, which is which might be the case, but uh, again, there are you have to find the balance between. Uh, 
between the resilience and the, your ability to provide continuity in, in crisis time and the businesses. So first, my main recommendation is you should not regulate whatever is not affecting the public. So if it only affects the clients of the company, let's say a bank and only the, the clients, and it does not, um, let's say, it does not um, affect the stability of the financial system, then that's be it. So the, the, the government should uh, not uh, intervene and uh, the shareholders should take their own business. So decide what's their uh, investment in security and they, based on, on uh, their, their business uh, considerations. But if the, um, if the entity or the firm, the whatever, uh, affected by a cyber event, be it, um, let's say, a deliberate attack or just an event that uh, happens because of malfunctioning, negligence or whatever, um, then uh, it, 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 the question will rise, what will be the effect to the public safety, security, and uh, to the national security uh, environment. If there is a, a significant effect, then we should intervene. I will give an example to make it um, a bit clearer. Assume that you have a garage that takes care of cars, okay? Um, Simon & Co. garage. It's a small garage in a little town and takes care of trucks and cars. So nobody should regulate what this guy is doing with the but assume that uh, in the case of the United States, let's assume, I don't know how it works, but it is that it works like this. Assume that the vehicles of, uh, let's say, one of our large manufacturers or distributors of food are treated in this site. And through this uh, supply chain, because he's a part of the supply chain, through him, you can find that uh, he can affect the, those Trucks, he can do a variety of uh, uh, mischief and can steal information from those trucks having all the lists of uh, clients, a variety of things. Or if this garage is dealing with, uh, let's say, uh, the security service cars as well, okay? Let's say one of our uh, security service taking care of sensitive cars there. In which case, you see, if it was just an ordinary garage, we don't care what, what happens. But because of this, the, the, the fact that this garage is taking care with sensitive or somehow can be sensitive, we should intervene and say, okay, you have to um, control what you do or you have to regulate what you do. Be it like a, a big caterer, that, uh, another example, that uh, he supplies food. So he gets a lot of... Uh, let's say details of uh, personal details and a variety. Of, so if if the the problem is a small amount of uh, information that is distributed through him, then no problem. But it is if this is hundreds of thousands of people registered in this caterer and he supplies food, and then we want to make sure that this caterer, vis-à-vis -vis the issue of uh, of uh, privacy, is somehow regulated. So it's not only a business issue for him. And as well goes with the uh, with the industrial control systems, of course. That uh, it goes without any saying. If uh, we have a, a Teva, which is a huge uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer in Israel, yes. So Teva has a lot of uh, control systems, uh, industrial control systems. So we say, okay, Teva should manage their own business. But if something happens to Teva, and something happens in the manufacturing line then it's not only the problem of the shareholders of Teva. 
So there you should have some kind of a tool to intervene. That's our model that we propose. So Andrew, is what Gabby's saying that uh, regulation is a matter of scale? That when it comes to private business, uh, it's not necessarily even the type of business that matters. It's the size of the business. I think what he's saying is that it's the impact of the business that is the question here. And what is, uh, again, unusual about the, the approach he's describing versus, um, you know, the approach we see in, in uh, the United States and Canada, in parts of Europe, what's unusual is that uh, it's not even a sector he's talking about. He's talking about uh, individual sites with, uh, you know, significant impacts. Um, you know, there, there is no sector in which, uh, you know, a garage is, uh, is part of a critical infrastructure. But he makes the case that if uh, a risk assessment determines that uh, a particular site uh, is vital to the national interest, um, it comes into scope for this kind of, of uh, you know, assessment and, if necessary, regulation. So that, that again, is, is very different from the approach taken in a lot of other countries. Right. It seems to me like it could just be um, something that works for a country as small as Israel is. But if I were to th extrapolate and think about how this idea would be used in practice in, say, the U.S., it just seems to me that you'd have a whole sectors and industries and so many more companies to deal with that, that it would almost backfire as a strategy in the first place. It's tough to say. We would... Uh... We would want to get a, a policy guru from the U.S. on a future uh, podcast here and, and discuss the issue. Hopefully we will. But in the meantime, let's get back to Gabby. So, you know, when we're talking about regulation, we're talking about standards. Um, how involved is your organization in uh, defining specific standards or regulations? Can you compare uh, what you're doing or what Israel is doing with what's happening in other countries, for instance, the NIST framework or NERCSIP or, or anything like that? I have to divide this between my business operation and my, my, my academic operation. In the academic side, we do not develop actual detailed standards. We are investigating or researching existing standards like NIST or, or ISO or a variety. We, we've, been, we've been asked now to, do a, 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 to evaluate the risk of the supply chain for the financial sector in Israel. So we evaluate a variety of models and come up with our own models. So that's what we recommend. But we don't go into details. Whereas in my business um, activity, we have to go into details and because we provide uh, risk assessments and uh, we provide uh, consultancy to our clients. So we have to go into details. In Israel, uh, there are the use is, uh, is various. You can find various uses of uh, NIST and ISO and uh, FFIEC and a variety of, of standards or frameworks. Um, we have an advantage because the cyber, cyber, National Cyber Directorate has uh, recently published last year, um, let's say, the, the, the defense doctrine on cybersecurity, both for large corporates and also for small corporates small companies. And um, this is a very, very good tool, a very strong tool that we also use. And it has it's very detailed also into the side of, um, let's say, um, 
industrial systems. So we have uh, a very good uh, selection of tools we can use. Uh, one is maintained and uh, developed by our uh, national uh, director, cyber directorate, which is very good. And others are maintained in, by the US or ISO organizations. We can select uh, whatever we choose or the client wants. So Nate, I went online after the interview um, looking for the defense doctrine on cybersecurity. Um, I did not find it. Um, I think the, the name is something different. What I did find on the National Cyber Directorate's website is a cyber defense methodology for an organization. Uh, this is guidance, not a regulation, um, and describes you know uh, a range of organizations. The, the sort of strongest recommendations in the guidance apply to any organization where the worst case uh, cost of uh, uh, a cyber breach, the worst case consequence is 20 million uh, Israeli shekels or more, which is about six or seven million US dollars. And that's worst case that frankly, I mean, look, six or seven million dollars is a lot of money. But when we're talking about uh, big businesses, it actually sounds like a very low number to me. It is. And um, if you look at the measures, the measures recommended for uh, businesses with that kind of worst case consequence, the measures are very strong. I would compare those measures to the measures in the 2014 French ANSI, A-N-S-S-I regulations. Um, and I'm on record in the past as describing uh, those measures as far as industrial cybersecurity goes as the strongest civilian measures in the world. It sounds like what you're telling me is Israel is very active uh, in this in this regard, that they're they're implementing pretty strong regulation, perhaps setting an example. Uh, very much so, regulation, and I mean, this was guidance, but still, it's, uh, it's, it's way out in front. All right, let's get back to Gabby. You mentioned earlier in your example, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times the, the topic of uh, supply chain integrity. Um, I understand you folks are, are cooperating with, some fo with, with other people in other countries on this you know, very, very difficult problem. Um, can you talk a bit about that work? So uh, the supply chain is a, is a big problem. If you look at history, you'll find that most of the, let's say, published uh, high-profile uh, cyber attacks have uh, started uh, through the supply chain, not directly through the organization. So the supply chain was a route to uh, take you into the organization. Now, um, I'm involved with an initiative called CISP, uh, an, American on, uh, an American organization, uh, non-profit organization, trying to promote uh, the, um, the supply chain resilience uh, in the energy sector in the United States, uh, mainly by trying to uh, let's say, vet hardware and to provide some kind of a license to hardware or re registering hardware in a certain uh, security standard that they will try to develop. Uh, my, my main idea is that to have the big companies trying to compete not on the security side, but on other issues, and to have the security side somehow being a little bit standardized with those big uh, manufacturers like 
Siemens, General Electric, uh, Omron, you, you name it, you know. And this is my, 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 my recommendation. However, the problem is not with new, new facilities. New facilities may be designed to, to have security embedded within them, yeah? The problem is, uh, I think the, the, the majority, we have legacy systems uh, that are working with relays in, you know, with uh, 50 years old uh, equipment. And uh, the OT environment is um, less updated than the IT environment. So I think that um, equipment to provide somehow to, to have an add-on to an existing uh, facility and to try to enhance the security through add-ons that you put in the, those existing facilities, isolating environments and helping, helping uh, put the security level in a higher level, I think it's a, it's a, it's a huge effort and it's a very important effort. This seems to me like a, a recurring theme in ICS, trying to uh, adapt modern solutions to outdated OT technology and infrastructure. That's right. Um, it's, it's referred to in a lot of places as the greenfield versus brownfield problem. Um, it is a difficult problem because there's a lot of very old equipment in, uh, in industrial control systems. There's an expectation that equipment runs for a long time. I mean, um, you know, think your own kitchen. Modern refrigerators have CPUs in them. Um, they're connected up to networks. Um, are we going to throw out our refrigerators when the vendor stops issuing security updates? Probably not. We, you know, it's still a, a working fridge. So, you know, there's these expectations when there's, there's physical equipment involved. Um, but his original point on uh, on supply chain, that's also a very big problem. Um, this is a, a very active research area in, in a lot of organizations. Um, this is a problem that has not really been solved. You know, talking about registering suppliers, establishing chains of custody, you know, cryptographic signatures. Um, there's a lot of work going on in this field. And the next question you asked, Gabby, was more about supply chain. Let's listen in. You mentioned that that uh, a lot of uh, compromises historically have been on the supply chain side. Um, it's my understanding that um, CISP is looking at hardware supply chain. The compromises I recall are things like, um, uh, you know, vendor laptops with crap on them being carried into sites or. Uh, people compromising suppliers and stealing remote access credentials and remoting into their real target. But that's all software. It, uh, well, it's a combination between software. I wouldn't say that CSP is only, uh, is only related to, to hardware. But, but even, even software, what you, what you mentioned, for example, you have a PLC that you have a computer that is, is trying to update the, that's a, the, the letter diagram or whatever. Adapted the, the software of the operational, of the industrial system to update the, the process, the process and process that this PLC is, is is taking care of. Even this connection is 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 managed by software, but but also by hardware. So you can manage this um, this risk by two mitigations, uh, two families of mitigations. One is a hardware mitigation, both maybe in the laptop or or in the actual uh, PLC hardware. 
and also by software mitigations. But uh, I would assume that you will need two of them. And also, not only technological mitigation, but maybe you will need a, a third kind of mitigation, which is a, um, just a procedure mitigation. Let's say you, can, you have only a, one computer that is authorized to be connected to a certain PLC, and that's it. When you when this is not happening, you have to vet another, uh, to, you have to register another laptop to do that. So there are a variety of, uh, of controls that you have to put, some of which are hardware, some of which are software, some of which are non-technological whatsoever, coming from uh, processes and, uh, and uh, let's say, procedures of, uh, of action. For example, I'll give you a little example, you know, that uh, those big um, turbine manufacturers, they want to have access to the production uh, turbine to make sure that all the parameters are in line with, uh, with uh, their um, envelope of operation of a turbine generator of power. That's right. I mean, vi vibration yeah, is the enemy of all rotating. Vibration, it be only not, not only vibration, maybe pH of some of the... So a variety of chemical and, uh, and let's say, physical characteristics. They want to make sure that it is operated because if they give you a license, uh, they give you a guarantee that it will work or that you have some kind of guarantee, they want to make sure that... So they need an online connection. If you have a Siemens turbine and it is installed, well, say, for example, in Israel or in the United States, the office in Siemens would like to have access to see the, this data. So how it is managed? The, we, how do you provide? You cannot have, a, a, you know, a line, a line connection, a physical line connection. Even this can be jeopardized. But the physical line connection between all the turbines of Siemens and the center of, of the technological center of Siemens. So you have to find mitigations somehow beyond the technological, uh, the technological um, environment. But that's a whole. How you mitigate those kind of risks? And how you provide controls is, uh, has a variety of software, hardware, and uh, non-technological uh, controls. It happens also, you know, with airplanes now. Engines of airplanes are also transmitting uh, operational data to the manufacturers. Rolls-Royce engines, I would assume that Rolls-Royce engines are transmitting data to Rolls-Royce um, control systems so they can I would assume that in a certain uh, risk, you can play with the engine while you can you can control some of the parameters of the engine from the ground of airplanes. If lease lines are used back to the turbine manufacturer in, in the example that Gabby used, does that not address the risk he was talking about? There's, there's no internet involved. Well, addresses one kind of risk. It addresses the risk of attacking the, the communication mechanism, um, you know, the communications as they pass across the internet. Um, but if you look at the information flows, um, all cyber attacks are information. Every bit of information can be an attack. Where's the information flowing? It's flowing from the, uh, the turbine monitoring system into the central site uh, where information from lots of turbines is aggregated. And it's flowing from the central site back into the monitoring system that backwards flow is a potential attack. Um, you know, a lot of, of uh, regulators worldwide are looking at connections like this and saying, you know, what does this really mean for our security? Um, you know, they're asking, 
if somebody manages to compromise that central site, now they've got an attack channel back into hundreds or thousands of, in this example, turbines worldwide. In a sense, this is very similar to the the sort of the new fad in industrial control systems, which is the industrial Internet of Things. Um, we have devices throughout control systems all over the world connected through firewalls, through the Internet, into cloud sites all over the world. It's, it's in a sense, the same problem. And, and so I asked Gabby about this problem. So this is all within the scope of, of the, the supply chain uh, integrity yeah. project is is uh, not just uh, the manufacturing equipment and you know delivering good equipment it's, to the uh, site, but ongoing just, connections. Uh, is that so? Is this related at all to what people are calling the industrial Internet of Things, which is lots more connectivity? Everything everything is connected to the cloud. Well, you know, this uh, this is a huge issue because uh, not all of them are what we call industrial control systems. You have a lot of connected devices, you know, all the IoT uh, family, billions and billions of devices, connected devices. Please? Uh, refrigerators, uh, printers, uh, cameras, uh, anything that is connected. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if this, uh, this recording system is connected. So uh, a lot of stuff is connected. And, uh, uh, and how to control and provide controls and mitigate the risk is a huge problem. And um, because the cost of those, equ those equipments, if you buy a camera, it's a few dollars or maybe a sophisticated camera, a few tens of dollars. Um, and it is connected. So how would you provide any security to this environment? You have to find other measures to control this kind of security. We have the example of uh, Dyn, uh, you know, the attack on Dyn a couple of years ago, which it was um, had a DDoS, a DDoS attack. The Dyn is a registered, DSN registered in the United States. And they had, uh, I think, um, hundreds of thousands or maybe 100,000 of of IoT devices uh, sending uh, requests to their servers, they took down the service for some time, and uh, Twitter went down, and uh, you know a variety of uh, companies that were registered with the Dyne providers, uh, DSN providing their names, were uh, taken down using this kind of uh, connected uh, devices, very simple, stupid connected devices. This is a good line of business. If you can go into this line of business, you'll make a fortune if you find the holy grail. You know, fun fact about that Dyn hack that, uh, that Gabby was talking about. At the time of the incident, it was the world's largest hack in terms of the amount of flowing data. Uh, it came in at 1.2 terabytes per second of data flowing into this internet service provider. Um, it happened to be that a few months later, that same record had been broken. Um, but that just goes to show the scale of exactly the problem that Gabby is referencing here. That is impressive. And, you know, the, it's a huge scale. The The concern that, that I have in this space, though, is less um, equipment being repurposed for, you know, to, to attack other sites. The What I'm concerned about is uh, incorrect physical control, which, which led into my next question here. So let's listen in. You know, we're, we're drifting away from industrial, but I've, I've often wondered if we are not going to see 
um, the very same problems that we have in the industrial space show up in the consumer space. So, yeah. for example, um, you know, go to the, the an, a, a consumer appliance store and buy a stove, a kitchen stove, a kitchen oven. Um, many of them have liquid crystal screens. CPUs are controlling the burners. If they are connected through Wi-Fi into the internet, into the vendor someday, and someone breaks into one of the vendors, you know, there's going to be well-defended vendors, there's going to be poorly defended vendors, and turns on all of the burners, you know, downloads new firmware to turn on all the burners on all the stoves at, at two in the morning on, on Christmas Eve as a terrorist attack, we're going to see houses burn to the ground. We're going to see people die. Is this is this something that the government that anyone's looking at? In my history, I used to work a lot in the in the process. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I, I designed designed processes in the petroleum, in the wastewater, and so we had to design pressure tanks, for example. So if you have a pressure tank. And you have a control, a control system that um, OT is, is uh, an industrial control system running and, and controlling the pressure in the tank. I, this is an example to answer your question. So good practice will be always to put a mechanical relief valve. So whatever the pressure of the control systems is being hacked or whatever is done with that, or it is malfunctioning somehow, it will not go above a certain, uh, a certain uh, pressure to explode because you have a mechanical relief valve. Sometimes we put two mechanical reliefs have to have redundancy. That, I think, is the future of those devices. I mean, you can have a lot of software and hardware technological barriers to, to try to mitigate your scenario. But in the end, I would recommend any those kind of manufacturers to have some kind of an external precaution, like a mechanical somehow, if, if you know, a mechanical uh, switch that will not allow, it's not connected. It will not allow things to go to above a certain temperature, about whatever you put. It's like a relief valve, but in a stove. And then you can take this example to a variety of things. So good practice to this kind of equipment would be always to put some kind of isolated uh, safety systems, not depending on the... It, get, it goes with cars as well. So you should have always isolated systems, mechanical systems that it is very difficult to, to manipulate. It is very difficult to manipulate a, relief, a mechanical relief valve, pressure relief valve. Very difficult. You will need someone to go up and manipulate with it. This is uh, th this makes perfect sense. The 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 more difficult we can make these attacks, so that, you know we can't have someone sipping coffee on another continent attacking us. The the more difficult we make it, the better off we are. Do you know the I was easier. What I said was easier said than done because the cost will be, of course, uh, will 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 have an effect if you want to have those devices in cars or your devices in. Uh, safety devices. In cars, I, I would assume you have, I don't know how I'm not in the car business, but I would assume that the good practice would be to design those kind of systems in cars uh, to make sure that the car is, because I, I've seen some that, uh, you know, a car, you were not able to stop it somehow because of software problem. It, it go, and you don't have any mechanical way to, to stop the car. 
that is not good practice good practice for design of course but uh, i think that um, anyway it 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 will have we will have to have some uh, backup uh, safety systems in anything we any any reasonable uh, connected device you know i like gabby's idea about sort of reverting back to mechanical precautions when it comes to cybersecurity it sort of reminds me of how uh, old railroads worked you know today we have all these electrical and you know systems that are sent into command and control centers but back in the day of course the way that you stop two trains from running into one another is you had mechanical interlockings. So what would amount to sort of a, con- a command and control center today was a guy and he had these giant levers. They were about six feet tall and you could pull on them and they were all lined up one next to the other. They still have some of them in sort of uh, old European towns. And, and listen, it, it worked. So maybe the answer here could be a sort of reverting back to the days of old where Uh, our means of creating redundancy in this technology could be not just creating two different, uh, you know, paths to the same end from an electronic standpoint or a software standpoint, but perhaps pairing software with a mechanical uh, means of doing the same thing. You know, that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, But as, uh, as Gabby pointed out, there are cost issues. Uh, The reason that we moved from manual things like that was partly labor costs, partly um, people make mistakes, errors and omissions, um, partly uh, you know opportunities for increased efficiencies if we can automate things, if we can do things more efficiently. Automa- a lot of automation is about efficiency. Uh, on the other hand, um, he's right in that um, these analog mechanical uh, safeties are... Um, are very reliable, uh, and you know anything analog cannot be hacked. It's irrelevant to information. It sounds uh, a lot like what I hear uh, from Andy Bachman at Idaho National Labs. He's putting together some stuff on uh, consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering (CCE). He's got an article in uh, Harvard Business Review that talks about analog backups. Um, an issue is that. Uh, Analog backups can prevent uh, disaster. They can prevent equipment damage. Um, In my experience, though, they generally cannot prevent downtime. And if downtime for the power grid or for other, you know, other critical systems, if downtime is what we have to protect, um, you know, the analog approach is is only part of it. But it is an important part, and it's a part that I think has been underemphasized recently. And is becoming increasingly re-emphasized by uh, by you know people like Gabby and and uh, Mr. Bachman and uh, others in the industry. Now you had one final question for Gabby. Let's hear it. You know we're we're coming to the end here. Um, can I ask what are you working on right now? What uh, you know are there thoughts you'd like to leave with us to to think about to research? I'm currently working uh, in my academic activity, working on uh, on. Uh, I just finished one book. I'm trying to get into another one. With, with uh, it will be a handbook for those who run cyber risk management. So we'll uh, review all the, the the frameworks and we'll provide um, a variety of um, tools for um, those who and applicable tools. It will not be an academic book. It will be 
an applied uh, applicable book for those who are active. I just published an article on, and from this article we will expand it to a book uh, article on uh, on guidelines for um, risk uh, risk management for cybersecurity risk management. Uh, then uh, other researches would be related to the supply chain, which is a very big issue. Uh, and we're trying also to find ways to relate it to the financial sector. This is during in my academic parties uh, to find uh, ways to to somehow put a framework on the damage of cyber attacks in the financial sector try to find ways to, um, let's say, normalize this kind of... Uh, because we all know what we call... Um, we try to evaluate risks, but we are very difficult to evaluate our... to value our risk, to put value, to put... In the end, what is the value of the risk? So we evaluate the risk and we like look for mitigation, but we are unable to put figures on the risks, which is a very big issue. And uh, that's uh, the ROI, and it's all economic issue. So, those uh, topics I'm, and in my business activity, I'm just uh, like any other consulting firm, looking for work and trying to do it the best way I can. Risk management seems like one of those subjects that's just going to come up over and over in the course of a podcast like this. Very much so. It is a it's a timely subject. Um, you know, we we hear a lot of talk in the industry about. Um, you know, risk-based decision-making, but, you know, people never really define how to assess the risk. So we definitely need more, you know, hands-on specific guidance in this space. So I'm, I, I you know, I look forward to Gabby's uh, book, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the more detailed, the more hands-on uh, his, his how-to, the, the better off we are. And with that, thank you to Gabby Saboni and thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Until next time, this has been the Industrial Security Podcast.